Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. I am your host, Toby. AlphaList is a closed community with over 300 CTOs that share their knowledge and experience in a Slack space and at events. With this podcast, we want to give our members and interested parties insight into the thoughts and ideas of top CTOs. If you're interested in becoming a member of the community, visit alphalist.com to find out more on how to apply. This episode is kindly supported by Fastly, the biggest challenger in the CDN market. Fastly is pushing ahead the technical boundaries and is, from my perspective, the best solution on the market. Fastly is known as one of the key drivers of the Edge Cloud movement. In one of the next podcasts, I will talk to Tyler McMullen, Fastly CTO, about WebAssembly and the Edge. Well-known customers of Fastly are Shopify, The New York Times, Reddit, GitHub and many, many more. If you want to try it all with first-class support, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. Welcome to the AlphaList podcast. Today, I say hi to Christian Hardenberg. He is the CTO of Delivery Hero, former CTO of Rocket Internet and probably one of the most influential CTOs in Germany. I think he, he really saw a lot um, in terms of different companies, different business models. And uh, yeah, with Delivery Hero, they just took over Wirecard's spot in the ducks. And I hope they have more fun with that spot than Wirecard had. So Christian, welcome. The topic for today is how to scale a tech org from 200 to 2,000 people, which um, Christian actually did, uh, maybe multiple times. I don't know about Rocket. <laughs> and um, yeah, Christian, you, you managed to... Uh, almost hit the 20 billion market cap mark, I think. This is so huge. Could you tell me a bit more about yourself first and then how you get into this? And um, yeah, amazing what you drive there. Thanks. Yeah, yeah great to be here. Um, I have been in tech all my life, more or less it feels. My, my first uh, coding, I think I did at the age of 10 or 11 and on an Apple IIc and ever since stayed with that. And I think it was quite a journey from there to to nowadays where we run maybe 10,000 machines somewhere in the cloud and it runs a Delivery Hero, which is uh, one of the largest food delivery companies in the world. And uh, yeah, big milestone today to, to join the DAX as one of the 30 biggest German companies. That's crazy. I think you're the only like pure digital company that is in the DAX now, right? I haven't checked. I mean, there's SAP. You could count them probably as the largest German company. With a, it's six times bigger than us. So that is maybe you know the next target then to to chase them. But uh, I think, yeah. But I hope more will come. Zalando is also uh, one of the candidates to join, and maybe HelloFresh someday. So so I think it's time that also the German DAX, similar to to the US, that the tech companies have a larger share in the economy. In the last uh, four years, I think you grew like crazy. Um, uh, what did you do? Was it mostly acquisitions um, or like there were a lot of acquisitions, but also like or organic growth and also mm -hmm. Corona growth? And could you could you describe it a bit more? What what happened in the last four years? Yeah, it's quite a growth story. So our, our founder, Niklas, really founded Deliver Here with his own money. Uh, back then, a different company in Sweden that then merged with Deliver Here Germany. 
And he had from the beginning really a growth mindset and was um, always looking for ways to also grow by acquisition. Within the last years, um, we, we bought more than 20, 30 companies, um, typically the same business model as we do in other countries, and then have a way to, to merge these things together to, to, to accelerate our growth. Um, but we really try to do it in a way where we take the, the local teams along the ride and help them to, to with all our knowledge, our tech, um, to to improve their business and um, not just uh, make it more than just one centrally controlled uh, setup from Berlin, but it feels much more uh, like a group of entrepreneurs working together to, to build something that's bigger than the parts. So the founders of the acquired companies usually stay on board? Yeah, in, in, in many cases, that's still the case. So look at Greece or Pidadosia in Latin America or Turkey. They're still the guys who, who started it. Some of them did it, for example, Pidadosia, doing their studies and stayed with the companies ever since. Tech-wise, what does it mean to, to, to integrate so many different brands and so many different companies? Uh, is there any joint uh, technology that, that you have? We have to, otherwise it, it would be not feasible or not possible to compete with companies like, like let's say, Uber that are highly integrated. So our approach is really um, simplifying by reducing number of platforms. So I've gotten quite good at what we call migrations, moving one platform into another. Um, and then we always absorb the team and join the teams also. Um, but what we also do is uh, providing our main backend core services as, uh, as shared services for the whole group. So if you now, for example, uh, get a rider on, on one of our apps around the world, we are, I think, 43 countries now, it is all going to the same logistics system that, that we built here in Berlin. Okay, so I assume that you at a certain point start implementing something on your own um, when it breaks accidentally or how do you what is your strategy to implement such central things is it when it when you, when it, a function com becomes big enough or typically there's innovation more happening in the market so they they are the entrepreneurs who see what's going on what competition is doing and who, who push for new things and i think a very good example for that would be what we currently call um, what we do with so-called DMARTs. Those are um, little warehouses we sit, set up all over the world currently um, where we buy our own stuff and, and deliver it with our own riders, which allows us to do go beyond um, just, just food delivery. Um, and that was invented or started in Turkey. So the Turkish team was really convinced of that and we said, let's try it, let's see how it works. And then After half a year, we really saw there's something big behind that. Um, and we, we said, let's scale it globally. And, and at that point, it really doesn't make sense to rebuild the same thing in every country, but rather take what's working and, and scale it. But that is best done from Berlin, where we have kind of sit in the middle of the whole network. Um, so so we, we rebuilt the, the Turkish solution as a, as a global service and now have uh, almost all brands uh, running on that. Okay. Um, and like, how did that whole 
tech setup evolve? I mean, um, I think you went from really like 200 people or I think when I many? started uh, four years ago, I remember I had 130 people in my team. There were a number of global teams. I, I did a trip around the world, visited uh, all these platform teams. I didn't, I don't remember the total number, but it, uh, the, the team in Berlin now expanded, I think, end of this year, we reach a thousand. And uh, then if you add all the global teams, um, we are in places like Buenos Aires, Istanbul, Seoul, Dubai, with tech teams, uh, also Singapore, then it's easily 2000 by now. Yeah. <laughs> and what is your secret in scaling there? There are two parts to it. One is finding people, but I think the other one is also selecting the right ones. So I think it's not so difficult to find people. Um, you you just yeah <laughs> go out there and and make yourself an attractive employer and uh, have a strong recruiting team and um, and people will will apply. But of course, my big fear was when we grow so fast and you can. I think this year we more or less doubled the team size in Berlin. So after one year, half of your team is new. And if you make the wrong hiring decision, suddenly half of the team is bad. Or after two years, whatever, uh, three quarters of the teams are, are maybe the wrong one. So I really focused a lot on hiring quality. Um, for example, in the first year, I made a point in interviewing every single person, like just to have a, make sure no, no, we don't make any mistakes and understand the, the quality of also the interviewers. Because if we don't agree, of course, uh, there's a problem. We should talk about it. Then I implemented a bar raiser program, a bit, uh, you know, stolen from Amazon, where we have for every interview someone who's completely from a different area of tech who does a final interview, who's not kind of doesn't have any incentive to 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 hire that person. And we wrote standards, we did training, we also, of course, then look back if people perform well, what who interviewed if they don't. So, so there's a lot of science into getting recruiting uh, to work and it's ongoing. And how do you, do you constantly measure quality of, of people working for you? Is it? Yeah, we, we go with the normal performance system. So, so every half year, everyone gets a rating. It's a bit like in school. And uh, that rating, we need to be really careful to, to make it fair. So we have a so-called calibration system where you um, present your people to peers and then have a discussion and make sure it fits together. So, so uh, you know, a very good is, means the same across the organization. And that gives you a good way to see if, uh, if the people you hire are raising the bar. Because I think if you, if you grow so fast, actually every new person you bring in should bring the average a bit up. Um, that's what we're aiming for, at least. And in terms of like measuring the, the, the output, is mm -hmm. there something you do? Um, and yeah. how do people collaborate usually? That's also, I think, a question. A radical way would be kind of numbers of lines coded or anything that people put into the system, let's say. But that is, no one cares in the end for the numbers of lines of code. And they, people care for, for business outcomes. So you, but business outcomes are sometimes hard to relate or correlate with the input. And therefore, yeah, we know our growth, but we don't really know the, how what we do influences the, the, the business outcomes. So you need to find these metrics which somehow correlate input and output. And um, one way of doing it is OKRs. As, as many in the interest industry, we quite, a, quite religiously follow that. 
by having every team, every department has OKRs. We do that on a quarterly basis and I always push for metrics in these OKRs to make sure it's not just I want to do A, B, C, D, E, but I want to change this outcome by doing X. And that I think is very important for the engineers also to have always this link of what they're doing to the, to the business outcome we want to reach. Um, but it's a challenge because not in, for every team, it's so easy to make this correlation. So it's over time you learn and improve. OKRs uh, sometimes also tend to be, to turn out very misleading. So um, that like shortly before the quarter ends, someone calls you and, and asks you to, I don't know, shut down your bank account because the OKR was to have less bank accounts or something like that. Um, does does yeah. that happen still? Happy to. I mean, one, one way to avoid that is that you don't link OKRs to anything like other incentives. It's not that you earn more money if you reach your OKRs. Another way is Google does the same. You never shoot for 100%. Uh, 70% is fine. That's kind of what we want to, what we want teams to achieve. So it's okay to sometimes make those trade-offs and say, I'm, I'm missing out on this one to get this one done. Um, but I think it, it still has a lot. It's not, I think no goal system is perfect, but it, okay, us work quite well, reasonably well, I would say. And with the, such a large organization, you just need a system <laughs> to, to align. So, okay, us help a lot in creating transparency because everyone can read the goals of everyone else and that can help you to understand why they're doing certain things. And you can put, if you have a goal where you depend on uh, depend on another team, you make sure you get into their OKR. So it's a way to manage dependencies, create transparency, create accountability, and also make sure whatever we do is somehow links up and aggregates to the right business goals. And there's a, a I think that these things you can achieve with OKRs. It doesn't solve all your problems, but but I think these things um, help to coordinate a large organization at scale and. One nice thing about it, it's scalable. Yeah, it, it works for 50 people, but also for 500 and 5,000. And we have now 25,000 people in total in the company. So it also works at that scale still, or at Google scale. So I think that's also very nice about this cascading system that you can always add another layer if needed. Okay. Um, so throughout the last, last years, the uh, so-called Spotify model um, uh, was, was something that um, a lot of companies adopted. I think you also did that, right? Yeah, no, it, it sounded it sounded great. Yeah, I'm, I I saw the videos and read the paper and said I want that. Yeah, I, I want to be like Spotify, and we implemented not across the whole company but in a large part. So we had I think around two hundred people pretty religiously following the system, and I was actually one a bit more on the skeptical side for certain reasons. But I thought and and some people was very enthusiastic about it, so I let them try it. Um, And I found a number of flaws. And it was interesting. Then we went back, actually talked to Spotify and talked actually to the guy who made these videos, uh, who is an agile coach. And the first thing he said, you know, guys, we never followed that model, just to be clear. And I was a bit like, okay, <laughs> that's interesting. Um, and then he kind of went on about all the things they found that didn't work. So, so I think it's very uh, dangerous to follow a model like one-to-one -one. Um, because, um, yeah, also Spotify evolves constantly and learns. Um, so we did then actually the, the exercise to talk to a number of companies. We were at Facebook, we were at uh, Skyscanner and, and others and uh, Expedia and, and try to kind of ask the same questions to everyone. How do you organize engineering and product at scale? 
And then I uh, took the engineering leadership to write down the delivery hero model. It's kind of our our version of Spotify, which um, uh, is a bit of a bit different. And um, in essence, I think the the metric structure of Spotify is very hard to scale. That's what I found. In, in the end, it's a perfect matrix where everyone is both reporting um, in one direction for delivery and one direction for um, functional. Uh, aspects like iOS and search or, uh, you know, database or backend and uh, anything else. Um, but that, that in a, in a steady state is really nice. But if you're constantly growing to keep this matrix correctly balanced is like super hard. And, and uh, the responsibilities between chapters and squads are, are overlapping and, and hard to balance. So we went back to a tree structure, which is much more boring and classical. But it one one really nice thing about a tree, there's a very defined growth pattern. You constantly just, you know, uh, branch off if you need more people. You you just create a branch as, as a nature. Um, and I found that a big advantage of a tree. <laughs> so um, example for your tree would be then like one, one branch in the tree is the checkout and yep. below that branch, mm -hmm. the could be something different or is exactly, something different? Exactly. Is we, we, we got away with the matrix and said everyone is reporting into the delivery organization um, and the functional organization is a lightweight, more a chapter star, um, like, a, like a guilds where kind of all the iOS people meet together and someone is a guild lead, but there's no reporting lines. Um, that has disadvantages, but I think the big advantage is everyone is kind of aligned with the same goals. And um, then, of course, the big question is, should you do a functional or more product-driven organization? And I'm a big fan of non-functional or cross-functional organizations. So we put on a squad level um, everything together you need to, to, to get a certain thing done. Let's say a search squad would have backend engineer, data scientist, product analyst, and, and they together um, own a business KPI, which would be something like search conversion rate, search empty searches, and so on, or amount of uh, business we do via search. Um, and that aligns the team very much with the business goals. And then you have on top a structure of a director engineering and product that has um, a bigger domain, for example, discovery, which would include recommendations and listing and so on. So, so I break down the organization very much along these business domains. But there's also someone in product working inside the team or? Yeah, we always have every single squad has a product manager, um, but we do a parallel organization for that. I, I've worked with product under tech. I have seen tech under product in both I don't believe so much in. I think the best solution is really keep it next to each other on this on eye level. I have a CPO, chief product officer, who is very close. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm meeting him almost uh, daily. And then on every level of, of the organization, we build these pairs between product and tech. And there. ideally, there's a healthy uh, relationship, which can also have conflict, but typically it's very synergistic because I think you, you, each of you covers a different aspect of the problem. Okay. Um, and how do you, do you also do like prototypes and things like product discovery in a way? Um, and if so, how do you do that? Um, yeah, I, I think we are still in a space where 
if, if you're in a very competitive environment, your competitors constantly also try new things and, and just looking at what Grab is doing in Gojek and Uber and so on. There's always good ideas, <laughs> no lack of that. Um, and, and especially, I don't know if you, know, you see the Asian, Asian markets or in, in, in China with Meituan, it's going into super apps where people actually add a lot of things into the, the food delivery app. Um, so I think often the problem is less to have ideas and more to decide what to do. And uh, one way of doing that, of course, is, is uh, prototyping, A-B testing and, and learning from the customer. This disadvantage is, is it takes time. It's slow. Um, another um, thing we do is design sprints. I think a, a good system to, in a short period of time, you know, get cross-functional people together on a certain problem in, in one week, come up with a solution that can be implemented. Um, but often it's also just good prioritization where you um, bring in as many views and voices on the table because often, you know, the operations, the business, the product guys, they have different perspectives on a problem and then try to align and agree on what is important in the next quarter. Okay, so you still have something like a roadmap. Yeah, in the beginning I had only OKRs and said why do two systems that, but I think there is a, is a value in a roadmap. We now went back to product roadmaps and have these roadmap sessions where um pretty big meetings where everyone is invited uh, once a quarter where a squad PM presents what they want to do based on all the input they got. And then everyone can, you know, speak up and say, I, I think this is uh, the wrong prioritization. So I think it's very nice and important to do this as a very open process where, where kind of everyone, including, of course, the engineering team is heard. Um, but in the end, there needs to be a decision and that typically bubbles up to the CEO if, if necessary. Um, For example, I'm very much involved with our Food Panda platform. There, the, the Food Panda CEO is always in the room in these uh, product decisions because, in the end, someone needs to do the call. Do we invest in, I don't know, SEO or logistics or uh, yeah, uh, better better checkout experience? Um, it's not one is better than the other. It's it's more what what is fits best to our product strategy or our business strategy. Uh, so I have a very good idea for you. It's a B test. So I mean, yeah, you yeah. have like you can you can fill like two home screens, I guess. Um, yeah. I, I assume you also do a B tests in in different companies and different apps. So let's try this there we and do so on constantly. And we have also goals on kind of amount of a B tests concurrently running. And um, I'm it it is often against intuition um, what what you find out so so the rule is pretty much every new thing needs to be a b tested to prove itself against the old stuff um, and of course uh, often it is not as good as and, and then per country because it might work in i don't know thailand but not in taiwan because people are just different so, so there's a lot of work going into that the, the disadvantage just takes time because you can only test one hypothesis let's say, on your search system or maybe three if you're good at, at one time and typically it takes two or three weeks to get really strong results. So there's only so many things you can test. So I think there's still a lot of room for good intuition of strong product uh, managers. I, I can imagine. Um, and I think a lot of uh, those topics also has to, has to do with the quality of the team at the end, right? Um, how, how good the results are. Looking at that, isn't it a good situation to have potentially multiple teams working at one single thing in different countries um, in different products? Yes. I think that is one strength of us, that we actually have seven big platforms right now. 
um, per region. So that A allows us to, to localize quite a bit um, and have in Korea a very different experience than we have, let's say, in Dubai. Um, but it also creates a competition between the teams and um, good ideas typically get shared and, and then others try them out. So, so it's, I, I, I would find it not ideal if, if all everything happens in Berlin and we are the only ones who decide. So I think this, this healthy competition between the platforms is super helpful for us. Um, if you look at all the different apps and platforms, um, would you say you, you still have like a, like a secret sauce in tech, something that is really unique um, for, for Delivery Hero that, that stands out, that is uh, the, the most important thing to, to tackle? Is it like route planning or... I think the the hardest part is the logistics. Um, we now have, I think, 800,000 riders signed up on our platform. And there's, of course, a huge cost combined with that. We need to pay these guys uh, and they need to live off, uh, off this platform. So if we use them efficiently, they're not idling. They don't spend a lot of time waiting at the restaurant for you know preparation of food or can't find the customer. So there's a lot of know-how how to get this um, logistics fleet um, as efficient as possible. That is, yeah, that's also routing. And, and we are quite proud that, for example, Google has um, offers as a product that you get delivery time, as, uh, no, sorry, uh, drive time estimates. How long does it take from go to A to B? So we trained our own machine learning models on our data, on our GPS from the riders. We're able to have significantly more precise uh, Uh, estimates for the drive time than, than Google could provide. So it is better and cheaper for us. Um, obviously, we train it on our riders who might have a different uh, behavior than normal uh, bicycle riders or so. But, but that is, of course, a big strength if you have so much data and can build um, models on top of that. For example, we also have models on uh, food preparation. So we, we with machine learning, no how long a burger at this point in time in this restaurant will take to prepare so our rider can arrive exactly when it's ready so the food is hot still and the rider doesn't have to wait. All these little optimizations add up and we have a big team behind that. Thanks a lot to our sponsor, The About You Cloud. The About You Cloud offers a full-stack e-commerce solution as a service that runs on exactly the same infrastructure as About You does. It is mobile-first, can act as headless system, event-driven, can be fully localized and is super integratable into existing solutions. Besides that, it is designed and developed by a really smart CTO and friend of mine, Sebastian Betts, who also did the first AlphaList podcast with me. About You has set up a task force for retailers and brands that want to be quick in the COVID situation. This task force will help you with the launch of your shop as well as with fulfillment, marketing, support and internationalization. Simply write to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by this task force. How can your model be better than Google's if, um, I mean, Google has better traffic data, obviously, right? Or is it something you can, you can acquire? Um, no, we use our own traffic data um, because we, of course, every rider has an app from us, so we know their location and speed and so on. Um, and I think it can be better because we take the model from our uh, the data from our rider specifically, not from generic traffic. And so it's it's better fitting to how our food delivery riders move. 
and you also purely work with bikes, right? No, is it we have actually, yeah, mostly bikes, uh, but we also have in some, for example, in Kuwait, it gets pretty hot and in summer, so biking is actually not so healthy at, at uh, 50 degrees outside. Um, and we have also now quite a number of walkers, which is interesting. So uh, people who actually bring the food by, by on foot, because in some areas like Singapore, Hong Kong, it's so dense that um, it's faster to do it up by foot, especially in the skyscrapers. And any robots involved? Yeah, we tried. We had a um, had a test in Hamburg actually with these cute little uh, curbside robots that that deliver the food. We also tested drones um, in Singapore, actually delivered to a ship there. It's very easy to do a test. It's very hard to do it scalable. Um, and we, I currently don't see that this will come anytime soon. I think the, the, the challenges are still too high. Simple things like getting into an elevator, you know, choosing the right floor, uh, getting past the reset. You know, it, it, it is um, for simple cases, of course, it's easy to do. But for the real world to open doors, all these things are still rather unsolved problems. In my in my neighborhood, uh, Starship actually still tests that, um, mm -hmm. or I think they have a B two C model um, now, right? Yeah. So they 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 deliver directly. Mm -hmm. um, so I I always see those cute little robots. Yeah, it's, I, I, we also tested with Starship. I also visited a manufacturer in China last year, and and it's getting of course smarter and more autonomous. And but I think the best use case probably would be in kind of controlled areas a campus, a mall, um, where you, I think in the wild, it's still, uh, yeah, I'm a little bit skeptical there. I would love to. I mean, as a, as a technician, as a, as a technologist, uh, I can't wait. But practically speaking, unfortunately, not there yet. By the way, do you still develop your own stuff or... Are you involved? I do. I do. I, I love coding. I um, I did it, of course, for years. Early in my career, I was a, a C++ programmer and did uh, 3D engines and some also game technologies. So I, I got pretty low level on, on tech and, and thought of myself as a good coder back then. Um, And then, of course, the more you manage, the less time is there and the less efficient it is to do your own coding. So it's a while since I did really production code. I did that at Rocket uh, for one project, which was a lot of fun, especially then getting code reviews from young guys who say, dear CTO, this is not how you do it. <laughs> and then you, can, uh, you need to accept the, the feedback. Um, um, now I do it privately. I, I, for example, built a game with my kids to teach them programming. That was a lot of fun in JavaScript. Uh, I did, uh, and sometimes I do some scripting for for certain BI topics. Get uh, get some data together to to get some insights just for fun. So mm -hmm. still, sometimes use your your superpowers in a way, right? It's, it's uh, yeah. Google I, Google spreadsheets, for example, or stuff like that, which can all be scripted. <laughs> Yeah, no, Python would be my, my favorite choice right now because it's just fast and, and efficient uh, or JavaScript for, for other stuff. So I sometimes it's it's fun to also try out just technologies and, and see, get a reality check from, you know, you read the whole area stuff. But the other day I, I tried out Lambda, tried out Golang. I, I haven't done that before, so I, I really wanted to get my hands on. And yeah, it's... Uh, It's good to, to be able also to have, you know, have a good conversation with your, your engineering team. 
but it's a challenge to keep up. Uh, obviously, for example, React, I tried, but I never got deep into it. So I still don't have this full understanding of the details of React and Redux and all that. So I'm, um, yeah, when, when I'm on vacation, I often uh, do that as a fun, uh, to, to relax a bit, a bit of coding. <laughs> Does it mean as an engineer, um, you really have to become a manager to climb up the next step these days? I mean, you yourself seem to be a good, a good role model for that. I think it's a decision you need to take. I, I, and I can't really say this is the, the, the right way. I think it, it really depends on your interest. I have been always a little bit on both sides. Uh, started from my study, did Wirtschafts engineer. So I did, you know, uh, management and technology. I, I spent some time as a management consultant. I always want, was really curious of, of the business side of things and um, also the product side. So as much as, as it's fun to code, at some point I felt I want to be also in the room when we take the decisions on where where are we going and what do we code. Um, and and I, I find that for me it was the natural next step at some point to lead a team, lead a department, lead a company uh, from the tech side. But I, I wouldn't say I'm more happy now. Yeah? Like I'm, <laughs> I think I was most enjoying my job when I was coding and getting into the flow of, of producing something creatively. Um, so I think if that is what you're good, best at and what you enjoy most and you don't have this tendency to also want to manage things, I think they're, they're in all good big tech companies, there is also a career path to become stay an individual contributor also for us. Um, we have a principal engineer, a senior principal engineer, where we you can make quite a good, a lot of money by being this the the, the biggest expert for some specific topic. So I that, that is that is an alternative path. But I think then it, if you are a manager, you should of course accept that this is not being a coder anymore. Of course, you need to understand technology. You need to, but but there are others who who, who should do the, the actual coding, and it's a bit takes a little bit of letting go okay um and are you like still involved uh, when it comes to aligning on common technologies in a way or absolutely yeah i think that's super important that that i, I also look in tech managers I, there, there are two types of tech managers one is, is is the guys who are just amazing managers but if you ask very deep technical questions they get like oh, i need to ask my architect or my my senior engineers and the others who feel And that's more my type. Um, if necessary, I can go there. I can also do it if really necessary. I just, it's not my role anymore. So when I, when I look for tech managers, I always look also for that technical depth. So because I think that the, the cost of mistakes, um, it can be huge if you choose the wrong technology. And so when we now go for new things, take my latest example is Cockroach TV. I don't know if you heard of that technology. It's a, Amazing new database with a pretty bad name, but um, it's supposed to solve all your problems by being, um, you know, extremely scalable and extremely uh, impossible to kill like a cockroach. Now a team comes to me and wants to build a really important part of the um, yeah, of, of delivery here on part on top of this database no one has ever you know used uh, in delivery here at least. So I need to really go deep and ask a lot of people and and read the papers to 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 be able to make a choice if that's really makes sense to go down. But of course, um, I'm, we should be open to try things. But if it really now we put our our wallet and and fintech technology on top of that technology, I think us as as tech leaders should be able to make 
uh, be involved in that decision. So is there like a, a classical stack you would always pick when it comes to starting something new or? Yeah, good question. I think um, it depends on your size and state of the company. And I think if I'm a startup, my main problem is get time to market. I would always pick the fastest and that it, it awkwardly did a lot of PHP. It was uh, not great, but fast. I think Rails is a good choice there. Mm. And I would avoid complexity, go monolithic. Um, and uh, for example, with Rails, you can be up and running with a site in, in days. Um, while if you start your Java microservice architecture, it might be a month. So then when you scale, it's sometimes you get to this point where that, that architecture re reaches its limits. And then it's time to also review technology choices. And You know, Facebook runs on MySQL. It seems to work pretty well. Um, so often the technologies can scale pretty far. But uh, Twitter made then at some point the choice. No, um, maybe Twitter, uh, Rails is not the right uh, technology for, for what we're doing. And similar for us, we moved away from PHP and pretty much do all and use most of new things in Golang or Java. And these two technologies work really well for us. Okay, so you also migrated from rather a monolithic approach to, to a microservice approach, or? Yeah, we have more than 200 services in production now, uh, probably 300 by now. We are currently trying to build a directory or to get, get hold of every little service. Um, that, that becomes more difficult, with more teams starting up new things easily, um, but it, 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 it works well for us. You you need to of course set some rules and guardrails and uh, standardization. So uh, yeah, but in 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 general, I I'm I'm always cautious. Uh, I wouldn't go for micro microservices or nano services, more kind of service oriented architecture. But at certain scale, I think it's the, almost the only way to to keep growing. So with the size of a company, um, the the monoliths should shrink, I guess. Then. Is that yeah. a good rule of thumb that, that you somehow shrink the services through? I think a good, good idea is to see if, um, I think the whole idea of microservices, so teams can work independent from each other and you, you reduce dependencies and can deploy quickly. So if I want a team to deploy whatever, five times a day, it's just tricky to ask that if they are sharing their code with 10 other teams because <laughs> the, the amount of things that can go wrong when uh, you know 10 teams work is pretty big you, you can find ways with a lot of unit testing and so on but of course if the team owns their own service and they're the only ones who make changes they they can deploy very confidently and and i think release frequency is a very important metric for ability to um, change your system and, and adapt to, to new requirements quickly. So I think uh, the uh, microservices help a lot with that. So what other metrics do you have? Release frequency? It's one of my favorite. Um, number of deploys per developer per day. Um, and so with more people, we should, of course, also the, the number of deploys should go up. It's currently, I think, 0.6 for us. So not bad, I think. So with a thousand, you would every day have 600 deploys across the, the whole system. Um, I'd love to see it at around one. Uh, that, that I think is kind of my goal there. I also like um, flow metrics. It's where you um, see kind of how long do things stay in uh, development. Um, so the lead time for new things. Um, of course, 
yeah, uh, we want to minimize bugs. I track number of bugs per developer, for example. I want to minimize incidents, uh, critical incidents. I track how many orders we lose through, through, through incidents and, and try to minimize. So yeah, there, there are a number of things I look at, but for, for productivity, I think, uh, you know, cycle time and, uh, and free release frequency are probably the most important ones. So no lines of code. No, no, I haven't looked at that ever. I look into code quality metrics with the automated uh, static analysis that that I think is helpful. Um, but of course, if I as a, as a rule, less code is better. <laughs> I that's think it, that's if someone true, removes yeah. code, maybe I should. I always wanted to track that who who deletes most code, uh, make a leaderboard of that. I think that these are the real heroes who remove code. And anything around pull requests. I don't. I think one thing that would be useful is kind of the lead time. How long uh, does it take to integration of a pull request? Because in the end, in, in Kanban or Lean, you always want to avoid things, you know, work in progress. And, and, and of course, every pull request is work in progress, any open ticket. Um, so, so if you minimize the time, things uh, stay there. And that's also what I like about release frequency. If you have a system, it drives a lot your way to, to, to your level of automation, your level of testing, your level of uh, CICD maturity. So all that is a prerequisite to have high release frequency. Um, so it drives good things, but it also on top helps you to minimize work in progress and, and, and everything that's ready gets to the customers and you have less unrealized value basically. Yeah, um, and potentially a too short lead time on pull requests is also not good, right? I, I probably could. We have everything on GitHub. Probably there are good APIs for that. Looking at uh, you know how much discussion is, for, but but I think um, yeah, I'm, I just didn't get to that. I, uh, but what we are doing a lot now, what is interesting, is is inner source. And, and promoting that and setting rules around that, because the bigger the team gets the more you run into dependency naturally. So we really want to get to a system where every code is open for everyone to, to commit and to, um, to basically everything is like open source. Um, and um, it works better than expected. I think there's always an initial hurdle to, to touch foreign code, but I think once you uh, may reduce a bit the, the hurdle, uh, people really um, see the benefit of, of solving their own problems instead of waiting for another team. And I guess you recently had like a, a huge explosion also tech-wise um, when Corona came, right? Um, so, I mean, all the restaurants that needed to be onboarded and so on um, naturally also like somehow touches tech. Um, how did you manage to do that? I, we, we had good growth. Um, I, I, we are already a fast-growing company. The whole company is kind of roughly growing 100% year on year. Um, so if you double uh, your business, and in some countries, in our best countries, it's it's more in the yeah, it sometimes was about a thousand percent. So that always puts quite a lot of stress on on your tech team to so keep up with that growth. And um, we are in a business where failure is pretty bad because people are hungry if you don't <laughs> if you make a mistake if they place their order and the food doesn't it's a terrible experience. Um, so Corona made it worse in a sense that this growth got accelerated quite a bit. Um, and we were having uh, trouble keeping up um, because in this microservice architecture, you realize suddenly 
it's not enough uh, to to, uh, to get the core right. On a lot of services are on the critical path and need to work 100% and scale. So you you really need to manage. And um, what we did there is a lot of load testing um, and have strict rules. Every service needs to be tested every week uh, and needs to prove that it can handle four times of the last measured peak traffic traffic um, and only. Pretty much that if you don't have that, you should fix that first before building features and so on. So this gives us always a factor X, four in scalability. Um, other things then we invested or currently invest quite a bit are things like circuit breakers and taking things off the critical path where they don't really need to be. Uh, and of course, building failovers. Um, so so this, this concept of graceful degradation where, well, if search doesn't work, then you can still deliver food yeah? and people go through the list um, or you just hide it. Um, you shouldn't, uh, should at all, all uh, cost protect your core flow that, that people can always order. Uh, if one payment method doesn't work, then there's always, you can still pay with cash or so. So, so that building the system more, um, uh, so it can still operate well in a degraded way is also a great way to, to improve resilience. resilience. You have like a crazy career. Do you have someone who really supports you throughout the path? Or is it just like you read a lot of blog articles on, on stuff and uh, are like have a network of, of other leaders you get in touch with? Do you have like some, some sort of a mentor or something? Mm, yeah, good question. I'm, um, I try to learn uh, and ever have been. And I think it's a lot driven by curiosity. If I see something new, be it technology or management, I, I, I get into it, read the book, uh, try to find the person I can talk to, uh, try to stay in touch with interesting people. So yeah, Amazon is a big supplier of us for, for, for AWS. So I tell them whenever someone interesting comes to Berlin, let me know. I want to meet, I want to ask all my questions. So, so that's a good way to, to, uh, to calibrate what you're doing with others. And I took some good ideas from there. Um, or Google, let's see, recently I, I met the SRE people and really asked them, how exactly do you do these things? Um, but then on the management side, I think there's also a lot by working with a good team and, and looking how are they solving things or asking them um, uh, when you get stuck with something. And I think we have a pretty great uh, yeah, management team where we support each other and can talk also open about uh, weaknesses, let's say, or, or things we, we, we have problems with and support each other. I can imagine, yes, that, that, that a network that, that stays, right, um, with, with uh, working with so many different ventures and so on. Um, so um, we are almost um, finished in time. Um, and I, I just have one question left for you, um, which somehow sticks to the last question I had. Um, What if your delivery bike was a time machine and you could now jump on it and with a sporty swing travel back to the early zeros when you just finished university? What would you whisper into young Christian's ears back then? I think I... Interesting. I'm... I think it took quite a while till I really realized my potential in a way yeah? like I, I was of course I, I was always working hard and learning and and uh, trying to uh, be part of interesting things but I it always felt a little bit like like 
luck or so, like something like that. I, that didn't come from me, but more from I was in the right place at the right time. But over time, I think I'm like getting a little bit more, slightly more self-confident and saying maybe yeah, it, it was a bit more than that. I the tech is is just an, a very important ingredient in in many businesses, and and us engineers we can really make a huge difference um, in the way we we contribute and it's not just the code or the technology or the, the architecture, but it's also the whole business. So um, taking, I think I would be a little bit more self-confident and taking also a, a role in shaping things on the business side. So don't be shy. Yeah, yeah? exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Quite interesting to talk to you. And um, I think we could um, continue for the for the next hour or two. <laughs> Absolutely. I hope we will. Yeah. Yeah, thanks for the conversation. Let's do, it was a let's, let's do that the next time. And uh, thanks a lot for the conversation and uh, hope to see you soon. And good luck with the, with the Ducks yeah. um, future. Let's see how that goes. <laughs> it's, a, it's a new learning for sure. Bye-bye. <laughs> Bye-bye. Thank you. Thanks again to our sponsors Fastly and the About You Cloud. If you want to get first class support by Fastly, just go to fastly.com slash alphalist. And if you want to launch your shop and get first class support by About You, just write an email to hello at aboutyou.com to be supported by their task force.